Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. And let me again welcome you to Redeemer and thank you. And especially if you're visiting with us, whether it's because it's Easter or for some other reason, we're delighted that you could be with us. Uh, Here at Redeemer, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God and God still speaks to us through it. We have actually been studying uh, together the book of Hebrews. Hebrews teaches us that everything before Christ was preparation for his coming. And now Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has risen from the dead, and everything the author of Hebrews says is better. Christ has entered heaven on our behalf, and he is there as a forerunner on our behalf And we have him as an anchor for our soul. We have that hope in him. It doesn't mean everything gets better here and now for all of us in the immediate. But it gets much better belonging to Jesus. And it gets much, much better when we are raised from the dead with him in glory. So we have much to look forward to, but we have much good that has come because Jesus is better than what we had in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant under Moses. And so that's where we are in the passage. Uh, Last week we looked at chapter 9, verses 1 to 10. We saw uh, that the Old Covenant was a shadow and a copy of the true reality of Jesus, and it was deficient and meant to be deficient until the true reality, who is Jesus, has come. And so tonight we're in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, and thinking about his ministry on our behalf and the blessings we have. Let me invite you to pay attention to God's word then from Hebrews 9, and we're on page 1006 of the Black Pew Bible. This is the word of God. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls And the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Amen. This is God's word. Let's ask him for help together. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Show us uh, your son, our savior, and draw our hearts to him. Help me beyond all human ability. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Here in the passage, Christ is presented as much better. And the key word here is redemption. 
he has obtained or secured an eternal redemption. To redeem means to deliver or to loose or to set free. And it means deliverance by payment of a price. It was especially applied in the Bible and culture in the situation of ransoming slaves or redeeming slaves from bondage. So we want to think about redemption tonight, and I want to do it in four parts from this passage. In the first place, in verses 11 and 12, the author tells us the way of redemption, what Jesus did on our behalf. And then at the end of verse 12, the success of our redemption, how successful he was. He secured it. Then in verses 13 and 14, he speaks about the effect of that redemption on us. What blessing does it bring in terms of our conscience? And then particularly at the end of verse 14, the ultimate aim of all of that. The ultimate aim of redemption. That we should serve the living God. So those four things, the way, the success, the effect, and the ultimate aim of redemption. Let me point you in the first place to the way of redemption. Verses 11 and 12. The author says this, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he's contrasting what he said prior, all that preparation, and Jesus hadn't yet come, but now the time of reformation has come, and the good things in Jesus are here. Now that we have that, Jesus, having gone through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not some man-made, human-made tent on earth, but the heavenly places, the most holy place he entered, verse 12, he entered once for all. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. So what's the writer doing? He has in mind what would have been commonplace knowledge for Israelites, for Jews of that day. uh, And that is the Day of Atonement ritual. For literally nearly 2,000 years, every year... They celebrated the Day of Atonement. And it was a day for uh, both affliction in the sense of it's my sins that need atonement. But it was a day for rejoicing and joy because God promised pardon and freedom, redemption. What happened in that ritual? Let's think about it for a moment. In the first place, and you'll find all of this in Leviticus chapter 16. In the first place, the high priest who was only allowed one time a year into the most holy place in the presence of God, he offered a bull at the altar and then brought it in through the veil into the most holy place, the blood of the bull that he had gathered in a bowl, and he put the blood upon the mercy seat. This was for his own sins. Then he went back out, and awaiting him at the altar were two goats. Two goats, and one uh, they were chosen by lots, which would be for what purpose? One was to be chosen for sacrifice. One was to be led out into the wilderness. One was killed. And the blood of it was captured in a bowl and brought into the most holy place by the priest. This time not for his own sins, but but for the sins of the whole nation. And then the priest left and he went back out to the other goat, what's called the scapegoat. And he confessed over it the sins of the people. And then that goat, uh, having had the sins of the people symbolically placed on its head, transferred symbolically to it, that goat was led out into the wilderness so far that it was intended to be lost and to never make its way back into the camp. 
What's going on with the Day of Atonement ritual? Well, some say that the sacrifice that the worshiper um, offered or that was offered somehow allowed the people to share in the life of the animal. That somehow the killing of the animal and the letting out of the blood was to make the life of the animal available for the worshiper, a kind of a mystical thing. And it is what you will find in certain kinds of pagan rituals, even to today. I have a friend and, and a, a man I was a fellow campus minister with at one time who lives in Florida, whose neighbor offers goats in his own backyard with the intention of gaining life from the death of the animal, some kind of transference that way. But that is not what is going on here in the Bible. The blood was taken where? Into the most holy place, where who would see it? God would see it. The reason it was taken in was for his benefit, in a sense. The blood didn't make a difference just for the worshiper's feelings. We'll get to that, but it did make a difference to God himself. Maybe the best way to understand that is an illustration in the Bible from the Passover event. You remember the the Passover when the Israelites were in bondage and slavery, uh, treated cruelly to the Egyptians, and God determined to bring them out into freedom, in fact, to redeem them. He told them to sacrifice an animal, take the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorposts and the lentils of their house while God's avenging angel passed through in judgment on all the firstborn. Not just the firstborn of Egypt, but any firstborn who was not under the blood. And in doing so, God brought Israel out of Egypt. He got Pharaoh to finally relent temporarily to let the people go. And God said in that story, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Hence the Passover. In other words, God wanted to see the blood. The blood doesn't just make a difference for us in that sense. It's not just subjective. God wanted the blood there and he wanted it visible. Think about that, why that is. It's because the priest put his hands on the animal and symbolically transferred the sins of the people and the guilt of the people onto the head of that animal and the people saw their guilt going to that animal and then what happened to that animal? That animal died. And the blood of that animal went into the most holy place demonstrating that a death had occurred. That justice had been served For the wages of sin is death. That punishment had taken place. That the debt had been paid. But it would not be counted against the people. It was counted against the substitute. The Anglican Philip Hughes says, The shedding of blood is not about the release of life. But it is about the loss of life. It's about death. Substitutionary death. And what the author is saying is this. Jesus is the true and perfect high priest who went into the true and perfect most holy place, not a tent made by man. And he was himself the true and perfect sacrifice. In fact, verse 14 speaks of 
him offering himself without blemish. He was a perfect, the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what you have represented on the Day of Atonement with the two goats is this. The first goat represents satisfaction before God, and the second, satisfaction to the conscience of the people. On the one hand, uh, you see in the goat that died that the curse of a broken law has been administered. The penalty has been paid. Justice is served. It was a picture of the genuine justice that came upon Christ. The second goat represented the removal of sin, which satisfies our conscience. And these two offerings were one sin offering. In fact, Leviticus 16 verse 5 says, you shall take two male goats for a sin offering. There there are two sides of one offering. In other words, propitiation and pardon. God's justice is satisfied and we are freed and forgiven. And so Jesus has come, the author is saying, And the shadow is no more. That old ritual is gone. He is the true reality. He is the true substitute. He provides propitiation for our sins, turning away the wrath of God to us. Justly do. And also, he has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. He's taken them into the wilderness, never to be seen in our presence again. Do you see what a blessing this ritual was? And the way of redemption, Good Friday, Holy Friday, is the true day of atonement. The true altar of sacrifice is the cross, and the true blood of the atonement is the blood of Christ, which redeems us from our sin. And so he sets us free. Now, I want you to see how successful he was at that redemption. Notice the language at the very end of verse 12. Thus securing an eternal redemption. Having secured an eternal redemption for us. That is something the old high priest never could do. He had to repeat his sacrifices every year because they were never final. They were never full. They were temporary. They were symbolic. They were pointers to the only thing that could really take away our sin. But Jesus has once for all, unrepeatably accomplished our redemption. On the cross, he cried out, it is finished. It is as though he said to the Father, the work you gave me to do, I have done. I have done everything you have given me to do for their salvation. And so what happens? Uh, In the Old Testament, the high priest, because the death has occurred, the earthly priest takes that blood into the most holy place in a bowl and he spreads it around. Jesus, however, we are not to understand him as having somehow risen from the dead and having, having somehow gathered up his own blood and takes it into the most holy place and spreads it around. We're not to... That's not the idea presented here. He in himself is the sacrifice. He is the offering. He is the one who died. And his death, his whole person in his death, 
is simply offered before the throne on our behalf. And it's clear from the way this language reads that he secured our eternal redemption prior to his resurrection and appearance in heaven. Now, that resurrection certainly proves that he was acceptable to God, that, his, that he, is, uh, he did the work necessary, and that resurrection gets him into heaven, ascended where he intercedes for us, but he doesn't atone for us. He's not continually pouring out his blood on our behalf. It was once for all poured out that the blessings of it might come to all who believe in him. Do you see, he did for you what you could not do for yourself. He did for you what no imperfect, fallen, flawed priest of the Old Testament could ever do for anybody. We don't ransom ourselves. We don't substitute ourselves for ourselves. We don't pay a price to redeem us out of slavery. But Jesus did all that on our behalf. And notice here that the sacrifice of Christ saves, redeems all who are included under the scope of his work. The theologian named John Murray put it this way. If you're tracking with me, listen to this language. He did not die to secure a mere possible redemption of all men, but he purposefully gave his life as a ransom for many. It was the effective accomplishment of paying the price to free a particular people. And he really paid the price. He really freed his people. Murray goes on to say, Christ did not come to put men into a redeemable position, but to redeem a people to himself. You see, he doesn't just simply make it possible. He doesn't just make it available. He secures it. He obtained it in himself. So an evangelist, one of these men who preached in a tent he set up outside and called people to. You've heard of Billy Graham doing things like that. This one was a man named Wooten. He um, used to hold tent meetings, and at one of these tent meetings, when it was all over, he was pulling up the stakes on the tent, gathering up his stuff. It was a one-man show, and a young man walked up behind him and uh, uh, said, Mr. Wooten, sir, can I ask you a question? And he was bending over, and he said, yes, sir, go right ahead. And, and the man said, uh, what do I have to do to be saved? And Mr. Wooten turned around and said, sorry, it's too late. And the guy said, oh no. And he said, yes, it's too late. And the young man said, you mean it's too late because the service is over? And he said, no, it's too late because it's already all been done. And then he proceeded to tell him that he didn't have to do anything as if to add to what Jesus did. He was simply to believe and receive the finished work on his behalf. And this has lots of implications. But let me point to three areas. One is worship, one is preaching, and one is mission. We saw those all in Matthew 28 where the disciples worshiped. He told them to go preach. He told them to make disciples. So let me highlight three ways this helps us. This accomplished, certain, secure 
redemption. In the first place, this is a reason to worship. And if you look sometime at at Revelation chapter 5, where John has a vision of heaven opened and the worship at the throne, you'll find there that the living creatures and the 24 elders are all falling down before the throne, before the Lamb, Jesus, And at verse 9, they are singing a new song saying this, Worthy are you, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Do you see what it says? It doesn't say that every... Uh, that Jesus redeemed every single individual in the whole world without exception. For if that's the case, Judas was redeemed by Jesus. Judas would be made a priest to God and Judas would reign on the earth as Revelation teaches. But it is that Jesus redeemed many From among every tribe and language and people and nation. He redeems all kinds of people without distinction of race, nationality, gender, social status. Jesus redeems kings and slaves, rich and poor, men and women, black and white, old and infant, Jew and Gentile. And so he is worshipped. Does your heart sing in praise of him? Second, preaching. We preach the gospel with the conviction that it will bear fruit in God's timing. Because Jesus ransomed people for God. We don't know who will respond or how many or when. I can't make any of that happen in the hearts of the people who hear me preach. But we don't lose heart when people don't listen. We don't give up and we don't think to ourselves, well, this is all in the hands of people and you know how stubborn they are. If, well, we'll be lucky if somebody's interested in Jesus. The Bible actually tells you that nobody is interested in God apart from his grace. We have together turned away and pursued our own interests like Lost sheep. But somebody is always interested somewhere at some time. So we should keep talking about Jesus because he really has redeemed people. And they need to believe in him to benefit. And then finally, missions. This confidence we have in God's sovereignty and salvation, this confidence we have in Jesus' success in redemption is the backbone of mission. Far from letting us sit back and say, well, it doesn't matter. Jesus is just going to redeem people. He did. He'll apply it. We don't have to do anything. Far from that. This is an impetus. This is, this is an incentive to go out in mission. John Newton. Uh, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. You know, we're going to sing his hymn, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder, in just a moment. He wrote a letter to Reverend Thomas Jones stating, quote, If I were not a Calvinist, you can ask me about what that means later. I think I should have no more hope of success in preaching to men than in preaching to horses or cows. Which is not that much different than the Apostle Paul saying he endured 
everything for the sake of the elect. Do you remember the Moravian missionaries? Do you know that name? Moravian missionaries, they were a missionary people. And at one point, some of the young people set sail from northern Europe to sell themselves into slavery in the West Indies in order to come alongside slaves to reach them with the gospel. And as they were pulling away from the shore, they lifted up their arms and yelled out across the waters to the relatives they knew they would never see again. And they said this, may the lamb receive the reward of his sufferings. And you know what they were quoting? They were quoting Isaiah chapter 53, where it says this, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to crush Jesus, to crush the servant. And he has put him to grief. And when he makes an offering for sin, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. He will see the fruit of the agony of his soul and be satisfied. He won't lose one of them. The fruit of the agony of his soul will come home through missions. And no other way. And therefore, the success of missions is certain. Because he secured, he obtained an eternal redemption. Now, what is the effect of this redemption on us? Well, there are many. But here, he's highlighting, it purifies our conscience. Notice in verses 13 and 14, the language there. It purifies our conscience. There's a cartoon that hit the nail on the head. It showed a psychologist saying to his patient, Mr. Figby, I think I can explain your feelings of guilt. You're guilty. More seriously, Rick Phillips, a pastor, says this, if you come to recognize how your words have torn the hearts of others as knives tear the flesh. If you think for just a moment, how your neglect of duty and selfish pursuit of gain have meant sorrow and woe for real people. If you merely ask how many men and women in this world have real cause to resent you, to wish you had never crossed their paths, if you take stock of God's holy and unyielding law and your incessant violation of it, then your conscience will speak against you about what you really are and deserve. And you will crave a cleansing such as Christ alone can give. And he can. And the author isn't saying that you couldn't get cleansing in the Old Testament, but it's better in the New. And he points you to uh, two rituals in verses 13 and 14. Of, uh, of cleansing of the flesh. He speaks of the blood of bulls and goats. That's the, whether it's the Day of Atonement sacrifice or just the regular daily sacrifices. And he also speaks here of the ashes of a heifer. And you may be wondering what that's about. And so it's from Numbers chapter 19. There was a ritual for purification if you had touched a dead body. Because if you had come in contact with a dead body, God declared you ceremonially unclean. You weren't fit for the presence of God among the people of God in worship until you became ceremonially clean. And so what happened is the priest 
took a red heifer, burned it outside the camp, and mixing wood in, gathered up its ashes, and then they would mix that with water, and they would basically sprinkle people with the ashes, ash water of the red heifer, and they would become, by God's command, ceremonially clean again, and fit in the community, and fit to worship. And the author here is arguing from that lesser to the greater. If both those rituals cleanse the flesh, they cleanse you externally, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience, cleanse you internally? You see what he's saying? The conscience, it isn't satisfied with the substitution of some dumb animal dragged to an altar of sacrifice. An animal that has not morally sinned is not morally equivalent to us who are made in the image of God and have sinned. And our conscience says, that can't be right. That can't be adequate. That can't be enough. And of course, it never was intended to be enough. And it wasn't enough. But Christ, by contrast, the incarnate Son of God, is a fellow human being, partaking of our human nature. And therefore, as a man, he is fully qualified to stand in as our substitute. And the conscience can be satisfied. Isaac Watts, the hymn writer, put it this way, not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. See, some of you are are troubled in your conscience because you are always trying to measure up always trying to do more, hoping it's enough to be accepted by God, and your conscience condemns you for being less than you know you ought to be. And Jesus cleanses your conscience when you realize that he is for you all that you ought to be. He is all your righteousness. He's everything God ever wanted in a man. Perfect obedience from the heart. Perfect love. And God accepts him in your place And welcomes you as if you were as righteous as Jesus because you're clothed in his righteousness. Some of you are troubled in conscience because you know you've crossed lines in the sand that God has drawn. You're a transgressor. You're a sinner. You're a big one. And you know you can't stop. And Jesus cleanses your conscience by being condemned for you when you know you ought to be condemned. And he satisfies the law's demand for justice so your conscience can rest satisfied in him. God is pleased with his son. Just be satisfied with the son God is pleased with. He cleanses our conscience from, notice the language here, from dead works. There's much debate about the meaning of dead works here. And I... There are many possibilities for what he means. Let me just point you in one direction. Dead works are works we do to try to soothe our conscience to purchase our freedom instead of receiving our freedom in the good work of Christ. 
Charles Spurgeon told a story once of a king and a farmer, a king, a farmer, and a nobleman. And basically it amounts to this. There was a king who ruled over the land and a farmer, he grew an enormous carrot. And the farmer, because he was grateful to the king, he brought it to the king as a gift, as a token of his love. And the king was touched. And uh, the king, as the man turned to go, he said, wait, you're a good steward of the earth. I want to give you a plot of of land freely as a gift. You can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and he was delighted and he went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who heard this. And so uh, because he raised horses, he said, my, you know, if you get a plot of land for a carrot, what do you get if you bring the king a great horse? And so he went back and he got his best horse and he brought it to the king and he said, my lord, I breed horses and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred and ever will breed. And I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. And the king discerned the man's heart and he said, thank you. And he let the man turn to go, simply dismissing him. And the the nobleman was perplexed. And so the king said, well, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot. But you were giving yourself the horse. He had a mercenary disposition. Offering the labors of his hand in the breeding of horses in order to get, to purchase. Instead of out of gratitude and love for the kindness of the king. And if we are coming to God ourselves in penance or good works in order to offer those to redeem ourselves, those are dead works. They will never get you life. They flow from a deadness of heart, a deadness of relationship, and they lead to more deadness. But if you just receive what has been accomplished for you, receive what he has achieved, you will enjoy God's good gifts. Now, some of you may say, well, you know, if if the gospel is that free, if the gospel is that generous, it's accomplished by Jesus, it's secured by him, then uh, won't this really make people unproductive in serving Christ? Well, you have it backwards. Security is an impetus to service. It doesn't hinder service. You know that during the initial construction of the Golden Gate Bridge, there were no safety devices used, and 23 men fell to their deaths while they were laboring on that bridge. But during the final part of the project a large safety net was put up for protection and at least 10 men fell into that net but were saved from certain death. Even more interesting, of course, is the fact that 25% more work was accomplished after the safety net was put in place. Why? Because when you have the assurance you're safe, you're free to wholeheartedly serve. And that is... The aim of this author in helping your conscience know its freedom, know its security, so that what, at the end of verse 14, your conscience can be free from dead works to serve the living God. This is the aim. Redemption, the death and resurrection of Jesus, isn't just about fire insurance. It isn't just about getting you out of hell and into heaven. It is about getting you 
for God and God for you and you in service of this God to enjoy Him and to live for Him. Are you living for the Christ who died for you and is raised to give you life and life everlasting? May it be so. Let's pray. Father, you're so good, and your gospel is great and kind and generous, all at the cost of your Son. Bless our hearts with the knowledge of him, and grant that we would be more vigorous in our service of you. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.